All right, so uh, finished most of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6 last week. And uh, that was by design, not because I was trying to skip anything difficult, though it is difficult. But uh, 2 Corinthians, the, the very end of it, chapter number 6, uh, it gets into some verses that lead directly into chapter number 7. So I'm going to go ahead and read those starting in chapter number 16. says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. And then it gets, here's where it gets a little bit difficult. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. In the beginning of number 7, it says, Having therefore these promises. So you have to understand the prior couple of verses to understand what these promises are. And where it gets a little bit difficult is... It's quoting a bunch of Old Testament passages. And we had a, a guy come last year. His name was Pastor Skelly. He had most of the New Testament memorized. He could just quote it off like that. Well, keep in mind, in the early church, they didn't have a New Testament Bible. They had the Old Testament. That is what they used. And Paul had most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized. And so sometimes he'll quote a bunch of verses just back to back. Thing is, the Old Testament's a lot bigger than the New Testament. And to make things even more difficult is sometimes the phrases that he quotes from the Old Testament are actually quoted from possibly a few different places in the Old Testament. And so then it becomes, okay, Paul, which chapter out of which book were you looking at? And so there's a lot to wrestle with when we get to passages like this. So I'm going to go over a few of these different possibilities and talk about the promises. The first part that says, and I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, we can find that in two different locations. Leviticus 26.12 says something very similar to this. And if you're not familiar with Leviticus, this is a restating of the law that was given to the people. That was given to the Jews after they came out of Israel. God gave them a law, and he, he kind of entered into a covenant or an agreement with them. He said, if you do these things, you'll get blessings. If you don't do these things, or you, you commit these sins or trespasses, you're going to get cursings. And then within this, we see this portion of Scripture. And he tells them that he would be their God, and essentially, I will dwell among you. I will walk among you. The people are going to know that there is a, a, a God in Israel. We see that again, though, in Jeremiah 31, 31. This is talking about the new covenant, and that is the age we live in now, this age of grace in the sense that the Holy Spirit of God now indwells believers. And we see almost the exact same phrase being stated. We get to the next portion, starting verse number 17, says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. This is referring back to Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, a prophecy is given that is again referring to the Jews initially. And he's telling them that, look, I'm going to gather the Jews as they've been scattered because of their disobedience. And I'm going to bring them out of their exile and I'm going to put them back into the land. And he tells them that as they're coming back into the land, hey, not to touch not the unclean thing because they were going to be bearing the vessels of God back into the temple. But what's interesting as we'll see again, as when you go into a lot of these prophecies that talk about the Jews being gathered back from the exile, frequently there is something that's paired along with it, and it starts talking about the Gentiles. And if you're not Jewish here today, you're a Gentile. 
And so it's referring to, we'll see right after this, it talks about the servant. And that servant, some people say, well, that's only talking about Jews, but it's referred to someone singularly. Not as a group of people, but as a person. And it's referring to ultimately what would be filled, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in fact, it goes on and talks about this servant would be used to sprinkle or to cleanse the nations. We get into the last portion. It says, And I will receive you. I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. This, this is one of those, it could go a couple different ways. It could be 2 Samuel 7, 14 or Isaiah 43, 6. 2 Samuel 7, 14 is talking about what's known as the Davidic covenant. If you're familiar with the king by the name of David, David had a promise that was given to him by God who said that there would be a continual line that would come through him and someone that would sit upon his throne, his posterity. And we know ultimately that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of what's known as the Davidic covenant. But it could also be referred to Isaiah 43, 6. I'll read it says in number seven says, I will say to the north, give up and to the south, keep not back. Bring, bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Every one of them is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So we see something in Scripture that frequently happens where God does things in like cyclical patterns. What we see a lot, of, sometimes what's done in the Old Testament, we'll see done a few times. And sometimes we'll see it even repeated in the New Testament. And what's beautiful about this is we know from the beginning that God did not have this idea of salvation only for the Jews in mind. Because if you go to Genesis 12, there's another guy by the name of Abraham. And he's given a promise that through him and through his seed, that the nations of the earth would be blessed. But then after that, Scripture kind of gets more narrowly focused on the Jews. But then it begins to open up again. Because the Jews aren't being faithful. They break the promises. They don't live faithfully to the contractual agreement that they had with God. And so they get exiled into the lands. And what's beautiful about this is as God's talking about bringing back the Jews into the land, he also starts to talk about gathering the Gentiles. It's not to say that the church is Israel, as some would say, or that we're replacing Israel, but rather God's mindset was not just for Jews. It was for everybody. It was for all the nations. And he's gathering a large amount of people to himself. And so there was more of a near promise that the Jews would be reconciled to the land and more of a far off promise that one day this servant would be a light unto the nations. This servant would sprinkle the nations with his blood, that he would redeem a people, that there would be one large household of God. So these passages that we read, these promises are promises we can actually claim ourselves. So what are these promises? These promises that the Lord would walk among us, that he would be our God and that, would he, and that we would be his people. And just like the Jews in the Old Testament were set apart for the purposes of God, the church in this age is also set apart for God. And just as God and his glory settled upon the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, today as a believer, the Holy Spirit of God and his glory is settling upon you. 
So we can take these promises for ourselves that he is walking among us as the church, that his glory is dwelling upon us, that he is our God and we are his people, and that he is our father and we are his sons and daughters. Pretty awesome promises that we can pull. And that's what gives the weight to the beginning of chapter number seven. Having therefore these promises. What promises? The promises we just talked about. So, so what? Well, having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting the holiness of, and the holiness and the fear of God. It reminds me of Philippians 2.12. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, now as in my presence, only, not only my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, we've talked about this before in the past, but I want to restate it, that when the term salvation is used in Scripture, it's not just talking about the point you were justified. In fact, yes, if you've trusted Christ, you have been forgiven. You have the Holy Spirit of God. Your eternal destiny is secure. We praise the Lord for that. But God's work in you is actually not done yet. So in a sense, you could say that, yes, I've been saved and that I've been justified before God and my sins have been forgiven, but I'm actually still in the process of being saved and that after I became a Christian, on my day-to-day -day life, God is working in me to become more and more like the image of his son. So you are saved, but you're also still being saved. And so in Philippians 2, when it's referring to working out your own salvation, that is the grace of God in your life, and that's what he's pointing to here in um, second, um, second Corinthians chapter number seven, based on these promises, based on these promises that you have, that you are his special set-apart people, sanctify yourselves. I think sometimes people will get this idea of, well, you know, God was, you know, he initiated our, our salvation. We, we put our faith in him, and they'll look at sanctification the same way, like, you know, I, not a whole lot we have to do. And it kind of reminds me of my, uh, my children, for example. I, I tell them to clean the room, right? <laughs> I tell them 30, 40 times in a day, clean your room. I even give viable threats that I will follow up on. Clean your room, or you can't play through tablets, no TV, no dessert. They still won't clean the room. They just, they, and yes, no dessert, no tablets, no TV. They lose all of it, and, and still, they don't care. The point is... For them, they just think like, oh, they'll keep, oh yeah, dad, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. I'm going to clean the room. I'm like, all right, if I come back there and it's not clean, I'm like, you've got an hour. By the time I'm done watching the show, I'm going to go back there. It's not clean. Punishment. I go back there and they're just laying on the bed. Like, hey, dad. <laughs> That's how we treat the Christian life, right? <laughs> With sanctification. God, it is God who is working in us, right? It, it is his grace that changes us. But he uses different things to change us, but we're still responsible for obeying and responding. He'll shine, he will shine the light on your sin, and that will bring the conviction, but we're still responsible for repenting of that sin. He might show you something that you need to add to your life. Maybe not taking something away, something you need to add to your life. You need to start doing this. He might bring circumstances like trials into your life where he'll put pressure on you because he's trying to push and prod you into a certain decision to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. But we still have to respond. We're still responsible for obeying. And Paul's saying, based on all these promises you've got, cleanse yourselves. You are God's special people. Now start living that reality out. 
He also refers to making room in their hearts for him. He says, receive us, for we have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. Now, as a reminder from last week, Paul was talking to the church at Corinth, and because of false teachers, there was division. And he had made the comment to them. He said, hey, guys, I have loved you. I have been selfless. My heart has been open to you. I've been speaking to you plainly. And there's division. There's strain in this relationship, but that strain is not from my end. It's from yours. And so he's kind of getting back to this again, and he says, receive us. We have wronged no man. He's like, open your hearts to us. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. Apparently, there were, the false teachers must have been saying about the apostle Paul that he was trying to defraud people. That he was trying to corrupt people and to take advantage of people. And when I'm reading verses like this, what makes me really sad is the application there is for today. We talked about this again a little bit last week, but how quickly we can write people off who've in invested in our lives. People who've loved you. They've cared for you. They've poured their souls out to you. They've been open. And then their lives, while maybe not perfect, they have your best interest in heart. They, they might be a friend. It might be a could be a friend, a family member, maybe someone in leadership, but just someone who's been speaking into your life and they've invested a lot into you. How quickly we can write those people off. And in this situation, because of gossip. You think about Paul's life. If you remember 1 Corinthians— he was working a job full-time while working with them. Why? Because he didn't want to be accused of doing things for money. He purposely went out of his way to make sure that, in a sense, he was above reproach and that no one could drag his name down because he wanted to make sure all the glory was going for Christ and people knew how genuine his love was. But then as soon as someone comes in who, I guarantee you, was not nearly invested as Paul was, they speak some words of gossip, and it brings division. No church is exempt from that even today. Not even Crosspoint. We're all in danger of that happening. And what I have to say is we need to engage things a little bit differently. And that is when you hear something bad about somebody else, especially if you know the character of their life, give them the benefit of the doubt first. And if you really question it, maybe approach them first. Because sometimes I think relationships are severed without need because of a lie. So think about these things. If someone comes within the church and it's a danger at every church, and by the way, we are not opposed to challenges and we are not opposed to people bringing up different opinions and, and we want people to speak truth. But when someone comes in with malice to speak a lie, especially someone who's invested in you, again, family member, friends, someone who you've looked at as someone kind of like a spiritual mentor, don't just write that person off. Look at their life. Does the character of their life really match what this person is saying? And if you question it, do the biblical thing. Talk to them directly. Talk to them directly. Find out, get to the bottom of what the truth actually is. I lied. I, uh, I said 20 minutes. I think I'm at 15 and I can't talk. <laughs> All right. We also see that his, his response to them did not come from a heart of condemnation. He says, I speak not this to condemn you. For I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with you. Great is my boldness and speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort and exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. So I really love the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians in that you really get to see the heart of Paul. 
you get to see the conflict that he goes through when he's dealing with people, and it pulls out a lot of application for us that we can bring out in our lives. And, and, and I love this because he starts off on there, he's like, like the things I'm speaking to you, I, I, I'm not saying this or written it to you, I, I'm not saying this to condemn you. His heart was for reconciliation. He wants to preserve this relationship. He wants to see their personal growth. And he spoke some tough truths. We know from what Pastor Joel said before, and you look into it from what even Paul says, there was a second letter that was sent in between what we have as First and Second Corinthians. And Paul said it was a very severe letter. But he's saying the things he had written to them, look, this wasn't to condemn you. He wasn't coming at them with an, with an attitude of judgment, of thinking that perhaps he was someone better or, or just doing it for the sake of making them feel bad. There was an end goal in mind. In fact, he said that so much so that his life was connected to them, that he was, in his mind, he was going to be living and dying with them because he had a common destiny. He's like, I'm so close to you guys. The things that I say, it's not to harm you. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I want to live my life with you. In the end, I'm going to die with you. Man, if we had that heart today when we try to speak into someone's life, not of one of condemnation, but of true love, and to come to somebody and say, look, I'm going to speak a hard truth. This might be not be something you want to hear, but to have the big picture in mind and to have the heart of the Apostle Paul that, look, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm doing this because I want to live my life with you. We have a common destiny. I'm ready to live with you, and I want to die with you. And I'm concerned for you. Man, if we had that heart, imagine the difference it would make. He talks about fighting and fears. He says, For we were common to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. We know Paul was greatly troubled during his travels. We don't have all the details, but he does give us a list and other portions. We, when we think of missions trips today, yeah, it's true, some of them could be dangerous. I mean, I, you go to a missions trip to um, Mexico or South America somewhere, and maybe really hot, maybe a lot of bad humidity. Um, I'd personally probably like the food, so that wouldn't be a sacrifice for me. But if the Apostle Paul was like, hey, Larry, do you want to go on a missions trip with me? I would have some second questions. I, mean, I, I don't know. Um, what's this going to turn into? <laughs> I mean, he'd, he'd been stoned, imprisoned, beaten to the point of they left him for dead. He had gone hungry. Those were Paul's missions trips. And it's not one that I think many, many of us are willing to go into, but this is what Paul would step into. And so when he talks about having fightings without, it kind of gives us a glimpse of his mind of what these fightings look like. But he talked about having fears within too. And I, this is, some of this is speculation, but I, I believe it makes a lot of sense. And he did write them a very, it sounds like, pointed letter. And today when we confront someone, especially on phone, sometimes on text messages, which isn't always wise. And please, with everything in you, don't do it on Facebook. But we're waiting for quick responses. And we, for the most part, we can get those quick responses. But when we don't, anxiety can build up. Now, Ashley doesn't care if I tell you the story, but before we went on our first date, I'm a really shy guy. And I... I it's interesting because I don't have like a huge problem talking up here, but one-on-one, -on -one, I'm not the best with conversation. And being shy definitely as a guy doesn't help you with girls. <laughs> so it took a lot for me to work up to ask her out on a date. But the thing was, is I didn't even ask her out like a man. I asked her out on digital like chat. 
Um, if you had Teams, most of you, if you work in Office, you had Microsoft Teams. Back then, it was Microsoft Office Communicator. And uh, I knew her. I'm like, man, I, all right. So I, I typed it out, and I sent it. But I couldn't see her at her desk, and I'm waiting for a quick response. I didn't know she was on a supervisor call. So 15, 20 minutes went by with no response. You know what was going to go through my mind? Fear. I'm going to get fired. She probably thinks I'm a creeper. What am I going to do about school tuition when this is all done? <laughs> do you know what happened? After all that anxiety and literally clammy hands, a quick response. Well, not quick, but 15, 20 minutes later. Sure. Oh. Okay, I felt better. Now, Paul, with higher stakes here, he sends out a severe letter, and he's worried about the relationship. How are they going to respond? He gives this letter to Titus. He sends Titus, and yeah, they didn't have cars back then. They couldn't send it by email. He has to walk this letter to the church while he's on his mission trip, and he doesn't know how they're going to respond. And so he's got all this external pressure on the outside, but on the inside, he's got fear. What if they don't respond to this the way I think they're going to respond? What if me sending this actually just severed the relationship? And why I like going over this is because I've heard in the past, and this is bad teaching, that if you're a Christian, if you ever have anxiety, if you ever have fear, if you ever suffer from stress sometimes, that's just a sign of immaturity. Was Paul immature? No. I, I doubt any of those pastors who I've heard said that before would go to Paul and be like, Paul, man, if you were just closer to the Lord— you wouldn't suffer these things. We're human. Sometimes we're going to have anxiety on the inside because we don't control the future. Sometimes we throw things out there and we don't know what the response is going to be, and it's scary. Sometimes God tells us to take a step of faith and we do it, and we don't know where our feet are going to land. It's fear. Sometimes those trials come around and from what I heard in the past from other pastors, they'd be like, yeah, you know, if you're close to the Lord, you should always have a song in your heart and a skip in your step. Now, I'll never skip because it's weird. But you get the point. You should always be joyful. You should always be happy. What about Jesus at Gethsemane? Before he went to the cross, he wasn't, uh, oh, giddy, yay, I'm going to die on a cross. It's, he dropped great sweat drops of blood. Because the anxiety was so strong. Not because he had uncertainty, but because he knew what he was getting into. So as a Christian, if you're feeling fear sometimes, if you're feeling stress, you've joined the ranks of Paul and Peter, Jesus. That's not abnormal. But don't get me wrong. We have avenues to relieve that stress. I'm not going to leave you there. Because... The Bible also tells us to what? To be careful for nothing or to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known in the God, unto God in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep or guard your hearts. We have avenues to give comfort, and we have faith in a God who can deliver us through things. But I want you to know that if you're ever struggling through stress, if you're ever feeling anxiety on the inside, that doesn't mean you're an immature, weak Christian. It means you're going through a hard time. But, as we'll see in this circumstance, God always has you. Verse number 6 and 7 says, Nevertheless, God, 
that comforteth those who are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. Again, think about what Titus had gone, or what Titus was doing and what Paul was going through. He, yes, likely going through very hard times externally, but internally he had a lot of anxiety. He sent this message out. I don't know how much time passed, but you can't walk from country to country within a couple days. I'm sure this was quite a while before Titus got back to him with the news. And we know from a few chapters back, Paul said that he was so stressed that he despaired even to the point of death. That's where he was at. And there might be times in your Christian life where things are getting so severe, you're praying, but it sounds like it's bouncing off of a wall, and you don't know how you can step forward. That's when I really love when God steps in. Those divine appointments. And this happened with Titus. Titus came back. He tells Paul, Paul, I can tell you something. They repented. And they'll love you. They're concerned for your well-being. That didn't necessarily take away all of Paul's external pressures, but it reminds me of Proverbs 25, 25, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Sometimes God can bring in just at the right time his grace through a word, through a text message, just through an event. Hey, he's done this in my life, and I'm sure it doesn't always happen when you think you need it to happen. So there's been times I've been waiting and like, God, why aren't you acting? But it sometimes it's at those point where I'm starting to lose, not my faith in God, but in the sense that I'm starting to lose my confidence in how this is going to go down. But then God steps in. It's not always the external pressures taken away, but it's that word spoken in due season at the right time. Someone coming into my life, God using something to bring encouragement, and God, he has you. Sometimes you might be thinking, God, why aren't you working things out now? Well, we don't know what God's doing in the background. You can find comfort from God now, but God does have divine appointments. And it's inter interesting, too, to think about, like, what's going on here as far as application. Part of Paul's stress was him thinking about how this relationship might have been broken based on what he had said. Do you know what the encouragement was for Paul that they made steps to turn and to be faithful. It reminds me of 3 John 1, 4. John saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Did you know as Christians, sometimes your faithfulness to Christ is actually an encouragement to other Christians? We don't really think about that, but it's true. Now, I understand that we, the things we primarily do, we should solely do for the glory of God— but sometimes seeing the grace of God work in someone else's life when they're being faithful is something that encourages us. And think about Philippians when Paul says that his chains, his, his, his imprisonment actually emboldened other Christians to be more faithful. Because he was willing to be faithful with what he had and what he was dealing with at that point. Other Christians could look at that and be emboldened. And when we are faithful to Christ, our lives can be an encouragement to other Christians who are struggling even if it's watching us during our struggles. Because when they see the grace of God is real in your life, that reminds them the same grace of God is working in their life. It's just a, an encouragement to be faithful. But he also talks about grief and repentance. And we see the goal first. He says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. 
though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrow to repentance, for you made sorrow after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. We can see again that Paul had mixed emotions. I sent you a letter, and it was harsh. But I didn't do this primarily to hurt your feelings. I kind of regret that it did, but at the same time, I don't, is what he's saying. Why? Because that grief led to a repentance. And that grief was only temporary. And this is something that we have to think about when we are speaking into someone's life, truths that they don't want to hear. We're not doing it primarily just to hurt that person. That's not why we want to do something like that. But we do it, as we discussed earlier, if they're a fellow brother and sister in Christ, we have a common destiny. I want what's best for their life. And so it might mean saying something that's uncomfortable. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, because sometimes truths hurt. And so he said, I regret, kind of, kind of regret, that what I said hurt you, but I don't regret it because it only hurt you for a while. And the reason it only hurt for a while, is, as we will see, is it led to genuine repentance. So he talks about godly grief versus worldly grief. Uh, godly grief in verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. And I believe in this passage, it's actually talking about the repentance of Christians. So again, salvation does not always mean justification. But when we become Christians, we begin a life of repentance. And as we repent more and more, we become more like Jesus Christ. The salvation that's being talked about here is the salvation of sanctification. You're already, they were already forgiven. Their eternal destiny was already settled. They had peace with God. But they repented, and they were experiencing that salvation of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. But to have a better understanding of this, I think we need to kind of uh, define repentance a little bit. And I want to go over this because there is some false teaching on it. And that some people will actually teach that repentance for salvation, that you can have your mind fully set on continuing to rebel against God and not even care about it. But as long as you say a prayer, your ticket is punched and you're going to heaven, and then you can continue to live on rebellion, no problem at all. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we see in Scripture. And their defense of that will be, repentance simply just means a change of mind. And in the Greek, it does mean a change of mind, but we have to think a little bit deeper about that. A change of mind about what and to what ends. Sure, it means a change of mind. But what are we changing our mind about, and what does that change of mind look like once it's actually accomplished? Well, think about the salvation at the beginning as far as what it, what it was meant to do. Matthew one twenty one states that Jesus has come to save his people from their what? Their sins. Acts 26.20 20 says, but showed first unto them in Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. And then what after that? And do works meet for repentance. So how does godly sorrow work in this? Like how does, what does this look like and how does this all work out? I'll bring up another illustration with my kids. I'm sure if you've got little kids, you've experienced this too. One of the kids hits the other kid and you're like, okay, you can't do that. Go over there. Tell him you're sorry. Sorry. Give him a hug. Touch the shoulder and walk away. And then on the way back, bam! You know, and take off. 
did they have a change of mind there? No. No, 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 not at all. And when we think about what a change of mind is at that point of salvation, it's when the Holy Spirit of God began to show you your sin for what it truly was. And you actually see yourself as a sinner and a rebel against God and someone who truly changes their mind, someone who has actual sorrow for their sin, will cast themselves at the feet of Jesus. I am unworthy to be your child. All I can do is rest upon you. I don't want to continue to live in my rebellion, but I can't do this on my own. God, by your grace, change my life. Save me from my sin. Forgive me. When you truly come for forgiveness, you don't truly want to continue in your sin. And to make things a bit more pointed, imagine if I told my wife, Hey, Ashley, I've been cheating on you. I'm sorry, honey. Please forgive me. By the way, I'm going to go out to eat with the mistress tomorrow. Was that a change of mind? Well, I had to say what I said, though, because she was upset and she was sad and I was worried about the consequences. A lot of people treat salvation that way. God's not a fool. He knows your heart, and he knows why you're coming. We don't clean up our lives in order to get saved, but we also don't come to Christ so we can continue to live in a rebellion. It is different. But as a Christian, that pattern doesn't change. We don't come back to Christ now that after we're saved, after you're a follower of Christ, you don't repent again for salvation, for justification, but this process will continue. God's going to shine light on your heart. He's going to bring circumstances into your life. And it's going to show you something about yourself that is very uncomfortable. Repentance is humbling. You're not going to like what you see. And God's going to tell you, cast it out. So we do it again, not for justification, but to become more like Christ. God, I can't do this on my own. I don't want to live this way. I cast myself at your feet. And you make a decision to continue to follow the Lord. It's what godly sorrow produces, godly change. You can't truly have a change of mind if that change of mind doesn't lead to a change of action. He was rejoicing because they didn't just repent and say, ah, yeah, Paul, I'm sorry for all the things we did. By the way, we're still doing it. He said, you are sorry for what you did, and you sorrowed according to God's will, and it brought a change in your life. But then there's the worldly grief, and this brings a repentance that's really one that leads to death. There are some people who will say they're sorry, but they're not really sorry. They're sorry because they got caught. This reminds me of another story of Adeline and Avon. Adeline didn't know from where I was standing that I could see everything, and she was in the bathroom with the hallway right here. Avon was running by, and she timed this in her mind. She timed it well. You know, props to her. She got in trouble for it, but props to her. Avon got in front of the door, and man, she just pushed her and floored her. And Avon was bawling, and Adeline didn't even know that I could see her face. And she had this evil grin on her face, like, yeah. And then she looked over and noticed that I was watching. She didn't know it was there. And she just broke down bawling. She caught, absolutely caught, and she was terrified. Was she repentant? What happened there? She was sorry she got caught. And there's a lot of people who something will happen in their life, and they, what it really is is they, I hate the consequences of my sin, but I still love my sin. And that's what it boils down to. 
And so they don't have a godly sorrow. They're sorry what the reaction was for the things they did. Hey, I'm sorry I hurt your family. I'm sorry this is how it hurt your business. I'm sorry your feelings are hurt, but I enjoyed what I did. I still love what I did. That, that is not a sorrow that leads to genuine repentance. That is a sorrow over circumstances. And that is a sorrow that leads to death because you're going to do that sin again. We do the things that we want to do. And so we might hate the circumstances of what it brought about, but we're not truly sorry in the sense that we hate the sin for what it is. And so he's saying that there was a repentance of life and a repentance of death and how a godly sorrow can lead to that repentance of life. And he was rejoicing because they truly had a repentance that led to their furthering of their sanctification. And he also writes in verse number 12, that the purpose of his letter, and it's interesting, he says, Therefore, though I wrote unto you, I did not write for his cause that, I had, um, that had done the wrong, nor for the cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. For the most part, it was Paul that had been wronged, and the false teachers that were doing the wrong. And he's saying, like, you know, ultimately, with all of this in mind, I, he was more concerned about the relationship. He's like, I, I want this to be restored. I want the repentance, but I also want you to see how much I care about you. And so his priorities, again, I'm not going to, since we already touched on this, I'm not going to get into it deeply, but it's kind of what he's getting at. And it kind of closes with a, a, reiteration, or a reiteration of the comfort. It says, therefore, we are comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because the Spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed but as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found in a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant towards you. Whilst he remembereth the obedience of all, how with fear and trembling you received him, I rejoice therefore that I have confidence in you in all things. Part of this is a little bit funny to me because Paul's saying, I rejoiced that you didn't make me out to be a liar because he essentially said like, hey, Titus, uh, Titus, I'm going to send you to these people. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a good response. And we know he wasn't entirely sure. He went there, and he, there was a good response. And he's like, oh, I was really glad that when I sent him, you didn't give him a bad time. <laughs> that everything I said about you ended up proving true. And so he's kind of getting this across, and that how he was comforted, though, because Titus got to see the grace of God in action, right? Because here's a church at Corinth that we know has had a lot of problems taking place, and churches all have their problems, but Corinth was a special church with problems. And with all the darkness that was going on in there, we see the grace of God still at work. And that's awesome. Titus got to see that. He was sent by Paul to deliver this letter, which, uh, if, if I, I don't know what this letter was, but if Paul was scared, I would have been scared to deliver it. So he delivered it. And after he's delivered, probably himself, not wondering how this is going to go, maybe taking Paul as a word, it's, oh, it's going to be great. And it was. The vast majority of them repented of what they were doing of. They had a real change of mind about how they were treating Paul and how they were interacting with these false teachers. And Paul says that this, when Paul, or when, when Titus observed this, that his love for them increased even more. He was encouraged, and furthermore, it encouraged Paul. So I want you to think about these things that we've gone over today. Starting from the beginning, because we have these promises. God's glory is resting upon you. He is walking among you. You are his set-apart special people. 
He's your father and you are the sons and daughters. Knowing this truth, continue to become more and more like Christ. Sanctify your lives. Cleanse your lives. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with stress. You're struggling with not knowing. Well, that's not a perpetual state we want to be in. If you find yourself there, and we all do sometimes, I don't want you to be too hard on yourself and think, oh, this means I'm a weak Christian. That I'm not really the person that I should be. No, you join the ranks of the Apostle Paul and Peter. They struggled with that too. But we have avenues that we can rest in Christ and find confidence in these things. Perhaps you're here today, and maybe there's some relationships that you've ended or are thinking about ending based on what someone else said, but the truth is you don't really know for sure if what they said went down, went down. Don't be quick to write people off, especially the people who've invested in you. Friends and family, you have your best interest. If someone steps in and is trying to break up that relationship, don't do what the church at Corinth was doing to Paul and just like, well, this person that I barely know or kind of know is starting to, you know, basically talk some trash. So now I'm going to disown them. Don't, don't, don't be that way. When we're approaching people, make sure that we have the right attitude about it. Wanting to see reconciliation. Wanting to see repentance. Because when you talk to them, you're doing it out of heart of love. You're, you understand that your life is knit together with them. You have a common destiny and you want to live and die together with them. Maybe here, as you're not a believer today. You're not a Christian. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We've talked about that a little, a little bit with the idea of repentance, but Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He lived on this earth. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And his entire life, he was harvesting righteousness. When in our life, we've been harvesting, or harvesting iniquity. And then what happened was, is Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, and he rose again the third day so that those who will repent and have an honest, genuine change of mind about their sin and will cast themselves at the feet of Jesus for mercy will find forgiveness. And all the righteousness that he built up and he lived and his life will be put toward, you, put toward your account. When the very moment that you decide to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as both your Lord and your Savior, Maybe you're a Christian here today and you're struggling with some sin in your life and we all get there because, by the way, the sanctification process is not done until we have a new body, until we're outside of this life. So there's always something else that has to go. But maybe the Holy Spirit of God is shining light on a sin that's in your life, something you maybe, maybe you need to remove. Maybe it's something that you need to add to your life, but you're struggling doing it because you know that, hey, if I come clean about this, there's going to be some immediate consequences, and you're worried about the hurt, and I'm not going to tell you that's not going to be there because repentance can be very humbling. As we step forward and we turn from the things that we are doing and we turn back to Jesus Christ, but that's why I loved how Paul said it. He regretted that they felt bad, but they only felt bad for a while. And then right after that, he talks about the clearing, the cleansing they had of themselves, the desire that they showed, because I don't know if you've ever been there before, but sometimes when you hold on to those sins, you just don't want to give them up, and you finally decide, okay, God, this is yours, the weight that's taken off of your shoulders. It's finally gone. The Holy Spirit's no longer having to apply that pressure to your life. And so while you might grieve for the moment, there's actually rejoicing in the end. If there's something that you're holding on to, Repent of it and be ready to do it again. Because that is the Christian life as we become more and more like Jesus Christ.
Maybe you think about your life and how faithful you've been and how it might impact other people. Okay, it reminds me a lot of when you read things like Romans chapter 12, how we should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't think about how our lives have an impact on others. Sometimes we think, well, if I just quit, it's not going to matter. It will. You might not like it, but people are watching. Now, I'm not saying be fake. <laughs> if, if that's where you're at, I would say repent, come back to Christ, because sometimes even when we get right with God, that's an encouragement with other people. But be mindful that our lives have an impact on other people.